0: and grow the industry around the world. So, for today's episode, I've been joined by Richard Clark, who is the principal mechanical design engineer at McLaren Applied. Uh, welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. Welcome.
0: And uh, I-, I wonder if we could just start um, by finding out a bit more about you and uh, and your background.
1: Sure. Um, so, I suppose a lot of people ask me why I'm an engineer. Um, it sort of baked into me a little bit, I suppose, but it's something I've always been interested in. Um, my dad's an engineer. Both both my grandparents are engineers. Um, my dad's recently retired after 40 years working for the same automotive company. So, it's, it's, it's always been there or thereabouts for me. Um, I grew up just outside uh, Birmingham in Solihull. I went to school up there my whole life. All my family and friends still live up there, um, which might give you a clue who my dad used to work for. Um, (laughs) And then, um, yeah, so when I was at school up there, um, classic engineering subjects, maths, physics, a little bit of design technology, um, spread out into a little bit of art to try and cover that creative side as well. Um, And really just what I would say is followed a relatively traditional route nowadays. So did my A-levels, um, and then ended up going to university um, to do an undergrad master's. Um, I went to the University of Bath to do that. Chosen chosen for a few reasons. Um, one primarily because they're a great engineering university. Um, secondly, slightly selfishly, they've got a very good rugby program and that was a big interest for me at the time.
0: <laughs> they do. Very good at sports there. Very good.
1: Yeah. So um, I was there for five years. Um, loved my engineering. It was, for me, never going to be anything other than engineering. <laughs>
0: So was that, at Bath, would that have been, because they've got quite a wide range of different courses, Was it? did you do pure mechanical or was it a sort of specialism?
1: Sure. Um, so ultimately I did pure mechanical, but for the first 18 months, two years, they bundle a lot of engineering courses together. So that would be automotive engineering, motorsport engineering, even medical engineering, all into the same first couple of years to get your base level of maths and physics up, do some core subjects. Um, I think I think I was pushing over 200, 250 students in those first few years before you then in your in your th- um, penultimate and final year start to to pick your specialisms and that's where you really start to zone in. Ironically for me, I, I didn't want to pigeonhole myself with a an automotive or a motorsport degree, but I actually ended up choosing all the modules that meant I effectively did that anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think I did that because at the time I, I wasn't 100% sure where I wanted to end up. And I think a lot of people are in that same boat there. And I felt like a mechanical engineering degree was had enough variety and didn't, even just from title, pigeonhole me too much. Um,
0: well, you can study mechanical engineering and be an accountant if you really wanted to.
1: Exactly. I have many friends who did that. So, yeah, engineering is a great way to get into many industries because it, it just demonstrates key skills and problem solving, um, comfortable with numbers, those sort of skill sets that a lot of employers look for. Um I actually took a year out in the middle of my, my university so that was a was a formal what they call a sandwich year so I did two years at university a year in industry and then two years at university um the year in industry was working for a small firm up in near Coventry uh, who actually made machines that made other things so mostly in um FMCG so not not motorsport at all so fast-moving consumer goods so all the things that you you buy in your weekly shop have to be made or packaged or manufactured somewhere, and this company company made the machines that that do those things. So somewhere there's a big machine that makes tea bags for you. Somewhere there's a big machine that makes drink cans for you. All those sort of things, which was very interesting. Um, and I did that for twelve months, and then went back to university, um, and it was great, and it confirmed to me that engineering is where I wanted to be. Um, and then I graduated in two thousand and ten um, with a two one engineering degree from the University of Bath, which is a great thing to have on my CV for me and looking at potential opportunities. Um, unfortunately, 2010 was, was peak recession and um, a lot of companies were were not um, employing at that time. Um, luckily, I landed on my feet and um, got a graduate role with Dyson, who um, were very, very hot on their graduate recruitment, even during um, that period in time so I met some met and worked with some great engineers whilst I was there working on vacuum cleaners uh, hand dryers um, dealing with mass manufacture of of plastics all the way through to um, developing products um, with um, an aerodynamic acoustic um, lean on them so for example trying to make the products quieter um, so I learned a lot whilst I was there um, and I was there for nearly four years I think I spent a little bit of time in their reliability team as well, which was very interesting. Um, but ultimately I got to a point where I possibly fancied a new challenge, but if I'm being brutally honest with anybody, um, me and my long-term girlfriend now my wife uh, decided that we should probably live together um, <laughs> and we were opposite ends of the country. Yeah. So we both looked for different jobs at the same time. Um, and that was when I came across a job at Red Bull Racing to work in their aerodynamics department. Um and I couldn't turn that down.
0: Um, <laughs> it's a pretty cool job.
1: <laughs> I've always loved cars. Um, I've always enjoyed motorsport. So to have an opportunity like that. Um, and at the time, um, so that was late 2012, early 2013. Um, by the time I'd made the move, it was sort of mid-2013. Um, Red Bull could do no wrong. Um, so it was, a, it was a great environment to go into. Um, that was towards the back end of their championship winning years with Sebastian Vettel. Um, So to get involved with those guys, clearly some of the best in the business um, to learn from. I learned so much whilst I was there, Um, won world championships, which is a great feather to have in my cap, Um, but predominantly worked on the um, wind tunnel model on the aerodynamics. So worked closely with aerodynamicists who were doing the um, computational fluid dynamics, Um, but spent the majority of my time, developing components to go on wind tunnel models, which have slightly different requirements to F1 cars. So you need to have a very, very quick turnaround to do iterative testing. Uh, you also need very accurate equipment, such as I designed some of the load cells that go on the wind tunnel. So they actually the devices that collect the data. Um, also had the joy of working with Adrian Newey a little bit as well. Um, there was a small group of us. Um, part of our role was to take his hand drawn sketches and turn them into 3D cad that we could then run through cfds and develop into wind tunnel models so that was that was very eye opening to see i mean everybody knows what his success is like in in formula 1
0: so genius um, at work
1: yes yeah, it's, it's unparalleled really so having the opportunity to work with somebody like him um was pretty special but also the team there i mean the entire aerodynamics team were phenomenal when i was there and i think testament to that is how far they've spread amongst the F1 community. If you look at a lot of F1 teams now, most of them, I know people who work in most of those teams, particularly from aerodynamics. Um, And yeah, that is a privilege to work with a lot of those guys. And then really my next step was there, was was coming across to to McLaren, who were a McLaren Applied Technologies at the time. Um, Really, I was looking for an opportunity that wasn't necessarily motorsport at that time. I loved my time at Red Bull at motorsport, and I just... I was in my my late 20s and I wanted to see what else was out there. Um, The McLaren Applied Technologies actually offered a really interesting route there, which was a company that's born out of motorsport background. But actually, at the time, they were doing lots of really interesting things. So I got to work on, when I first started, um, medical projects, for example, projects that not many people appreciate that McLaren Group have been involved with, um, whether that be exoskeletons for for different medical reasons, uh, measurement devices to assist with post-operative care with patients, um, for example, um, knee wearables, let's say, um, and and lots of other stuff that, that I probably can't talk about. Um, there are some really cool projects that that team have worked on in the past. Um, so it was definitely a step away from motorsport, but McLaren applied appeal to me because of that motorsport mentality that still existed
0: like one toe in the motorsport world and one toe out kind of thing
1: yeah exactly so so, i mean mclaren group um as it was called at the time was formed of three key companies mclaren racing which is their formula one outfit Uh, mclaren automotive which is their road car segment and then mclaren applied technologies which basically did everything else if it wasn't those two um it, it stemmed mclaren applied technologies is now called just McLaren Applied, and it rebranded a few years ago. But um, McLaren Applied Technology has been through, through a number of names, starting off as Tag Electronics over 30 years ago, all the way through from McLaren Electrical Systems Limited, through to McLaren Applied Technologies, through to the McLaren Applied we know today. Um, and that stemmed from initially tag electronics was predominantly electronics they were doing motorsport electronics for the formula one race team and that just grew and grew and grew just because of obviously i wasn't around at that time there are still guys here who talk about who were around at that time and still work here um which is testament again to to mclaren applied as a company um so for my first Let's say three and a half years. McLaren applied. I was working on the the non-motorsport, non-automotive projects. I did dabble a little bit just because of my background, but my my focus was the the design side of things. So let's say the medical projects, the 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 things that outside of these four walls, people aren't really aware of, uh, which was really interesting for me. Um, but over COVID, I think the world changed a lot. Um, McLaren applied was not immune from that. Um, everybody had difficult times, but that was the time when McLaren applied was effectively sold by McLaren group to a, um, to a private investment group. Um, And the focus there was, I think partly because of private investment group and partly because of the state of the world at that time, let's focus on what we're great at. And, um, and at the time that was, that was motorsport. Um, There's also, we also have some, some pretty large automotive projects going on and, And the the focus of those is really taking our our motorsport heritage and knowledge and applying those into automotive sectors, um, typically inverters for us. So we do a lot of work with inverters. Um, And then we also have a third section in the company at the moment called Connected Intelligence that are applying a lot of that know-how into the rail industry, which um, I don't know a lot about, but um, it's it's not really my sector. Those three sectors operate relatively independently now. We're starting to share a little bit more, but my focus is within the motorsport business. Um, And I work within the motorsport business for an area of um, McLaren Apply called um, High Performance Components. And that's been around for a very long time. Servicing teams. So we design, research and develop, manufacture um, and test and support sensors and alternators, which fall into that bracket, for pretty much any motorsport series professional you can think of anywhere in the world. So whether that be um, tire pressure measurement systems that go into four-wheeled vehicles, we even have them running in some two-wheel series as well. Um, Most of our sensors can be used either for balance of performance, so they're, they're dictated by series to make sure that teams are within their prescribed limits, but also obviously a lot of teams buy these sensors to to manage and monitor their own equipment and their own vehicles, um, so I, I think I touched on tire pressure systems, which is which is a big thing for my team at the moment. Um, we also make high temperature sensors, so they they'll measure brake disc temperatures in any vehicle you fancy. We do we do boost pressure sensors that run in American car series. We do crank sensors. I mean. I think we've got the best part of a thousand product variants within that team. Just to give you an idea, don't worry. I'm not going to reel them
0: all <laughs> off. Wow. Okay. It's a big catalog of sensors.
1: It's a big old catalog and, and a lot of them are variants on other products. So for example, we'll have a core product that we sell into many different areas and and the, the difference between one team and another might be the mounting boss. It might be the electrical connector, those sorts of variants, or maybe even the measurement range on a, on a rotary sensor, let's say. Um, so there's a lot of variance, but we do have core product areas within that team. So I've been in that team a year, 18 months now.
0: And it, uh, so if it, if there's a few interesting things kind of come out of that. Uh, and ov- obviously, you know, re- regular listeners of the show will know, like we n- we're normally talking quite intensively about electric vehicle stuff and hybrid vehicle stuff. And obviously Formula One is now all it's hybrids and, and your ECUs are, are controlling um, the the vehicle um, but you, you see kind of more and more hybridization and, and electrification coming into motorsport from where you guys are, are sitting?
1: So short answer yes. Um I'm guessing you didn't want the short answer though. Um <laughs> yeah, go
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: so so I think it's always it's always on the it's always on the radar. Um obviously in the team that I'm within at the moment, high performance components, we talk to a vast range of series, we talk to a vast range of independent teams. Um, and sometimes they always go, are you aware of our electrical program? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in electric vehicles. Tyres is a great example. They've all got tires in motorsport, so they they all need those. But I think, yeah, where you talk about the the hybridization, um, there are definitely products that we are exploring and or have explored within our R&D environment that, that are lent that way, and we will always consider the... The requirements if, if something was to be fitted into a hybrid vehicle
0: these is really complex in some ways it's the it's sort of good in that it's pushing technology and things but it's just extra lots and lots of extra levels of complexity um with high voltage electrical systems and motors and inverters you mentioned that McLaren are particularly involved in so there's an awful lot of complexity in um, in a race car now
1: yeah and i mean we do we do do products that are I mean, current and, and future products that are specifically for, for hybrid variants, like, like we say, um, we have to consider it. And, and sometimes a customer will come to us with a specific request. So and I know the team that I work in, um, just as I started, we're just finishing off developing um, an alternator to go into one of the Le Mans cars, which is which is hybrid. So that's, from an alternator point of view, that's got some very different requirements compared to a, a what I would call a traditional alternator Um I mean, 0.1 simply because of voltage. Um, and then obviously a core part of our business is, which is outside of the team I I'm in at the moment, um, is the ECU world. Um, and we are developing sort of our next generation of ECUs alongside of our standard ECUs that will run in many series. Um, I know that one of those is earmarked for, um, I believe one of those is earmarked for formulary. E. Um, so there's definitely an appetite within the business to be pursuing those, those hybrid electrification series, um, like you say, a lot of them are moving in that direction, either solely or in a hybrid variant. So they're they're not fully electric, but partially yeah. electric.
0: And and I guess um, so. Then the other the other part of how we led up to the the discussion today. Um, so again, some some of the listeners to the podcast will know that I'm involved um, with a company uh, outside the podcast called Transcend, and and Transense make uh, torque sensors have a special technology for for torque sensing, and um, and and that is used by McLaren. So, uh, just be really interesting to kind of learn a bit more about how you're using those torque sensors in the drive line and where they come into it.
1: Sure. Um, so, I believe the, these torque sensors are being used within um, the high performance components team well before I was involved with this team. Um, it's been a, an upwards learning curve. But, but predominantly, um, our, our initial use of those sensors a, a long, long time ago was on the initial curves, actually systems that went into the Formula One cars. So it was about measuring the torque going in and out of those systems. Um, and I think we did we did some of those for um, specific Formula One teams, or I, I suppose it's not specific for the team at that point. It's part of a, a powertrain package coming from a team. But really, that the, the big one for us that um, has been on our radar for a very long time, um, I think I think over eight years, um, has been IndyCar in the US. So um, the clutch shaft, which fits between the the powertrain or the engine on those, because because they're non-hybrid at the moment, uh, between between the ice, uh, the internal combustion engine and the gearbox, you have the clutch shaft. And um, IndyCar as a series, we've designed those for the series. So IndyCar use that. As a, a BOP so balance of performance so it's a way for the series to measure the torque output from those engines and maintain make sure that's parity between the teams so it's effectively it's a sensor so that so the shaft is designed and it could it could work in that environment anyway without the sensor so mechanically it's the same um, and then we designed some features sort of in in partnership between mclaren applied and Transcend, that will mount those um, source sensors, and at a high level, those those source sensors effectively vary their frequency output based upon the torque and temperature to an extent that the shaft is experiencing. There's a little interrogation unit that we design that the teams use, and that data is fed back to that, um, that McLaren ECU, um, and then that is encrypted, that data is encrypted to an extent so that the race series can see exactly what's going on with the torque coming out of that power unit so that they can make sure all the teams are running parity. So that's that's the, the high level as to how those units work. And then we have started, or well, we, we, we've just finished making a prototype, which is sort of the next generation of IndyCar drivetrains. Um, so the fundamentals are, are pretty much the same. There's just slight different mechanical interfaces on either end. So still utilizing the source sensor, still used for balance of performance by the series. Um, so yeah, um, that's that's one of our more recent projects.
0: Doing that sort of thing, you know, I I know I've spoken to people about this in the past and they're like, "What? you know, they can't quite imagine that it's possible to put a a torque sensor into a real powertrain, you know, that's going to go out on the track and get thrashed around. you know, that's a pretty horrendous operating environment for a sensor like that, that, you know, how have you managed to overcome all those sort of challenges in that, in the operating environment?
1: Good question. Um, I think the operating environment there is is quite tough from a vibration point of view and a and a temperature point of view. These these types of sensors, from a transceint's point of view, have been used out outside of motorsport for a number of years. So there's there's good history there as to their background and what they're capable of. Um, and they're actually very small sensors, and they they can deal with those environments very well. Um, we tend to do levels of testing, whether that be on a dyno before they end up on real vehicles to make sure that they're okay. We we make sure we pick materials that we know are suitable in those environments, whether that be temperature um, or or even fluids, for example. So the kind of fluids they'll be um, taking taken into account of those fluids. But actually that environment isn't, whilst we talk about that particular environment being quite difficult, it's actually not too bad there because <laughs> yeah. it's not... It's not out in the airflow. It's not out in the open. It's not in the wild of the vehicle. It's contained within within a unit almost. So as long as it's installed correctly and I suppose maintained properly and protected suitably during installation, um, it's not as it's not as difficult as it could be for some of our other sensors.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's you. you create a sort of a nice home for it in the in the drive line. Is, is it? Um, being the clutch shaft uh presumably it's it's actually in the you know in the wet space in the transmission then
1: uh no it's it's, it's in it's in the dry between the two uh,
0: okay right so in in between the engine and transmission
1: yeah in in that particular installation there's, there's no reason you can't put that sensor on any shaft you fancy
0: yeah and and just going actually one of the you mentioned earlier about the curves so so just um you know that's an interesting application um because it's quite a while ago that is was that before your time or was were you involved in that stuff
1: definitely before my time (laughs) yeah it might have even been before my time as an engineer to be honest (laughs) um but i should look at that actually out of interest and see see if it was because i think it will have been about the time when i probably when i graduated but definitely before my time at mclaren applied um but it does you touched on a few things there that do make it interesting um and I was, I was going to touch on some of, some of the pros and cons, I suppose, of the source system versus other things, other solutions that are on the market at the moment um, that actually make this sensor very suitable for a motorsport environment. Um, there are a number of different ways to measure torque in a shaft. Um, but, but a really important one, and, and I say it's important, is because it is, it's not the chosen system at the moment, but it is a system used by a number of, of series or or motorsport vehicles, um, um, is basically measuring the the change in magnetic field in a shaft as it as it experiences torque, um, which is which is used in Formula One cars, I believe. However, it's got some limitations because it's got two key limitations really, particularly when we talk about this hybridization and electrification. Um, one, um, the shaft needs to be magnetised. In order to do that, which is obviously not very good We're running near things like e-motors and areas where there's a lot of other magnetization going on. And, and the second one sort of falls out the back of that, which is it sort of therefore has to be steel. Um, so those two combined or sort of hand in hand, I suppose, are two things that we don't have to do with a source sensor. Um, the shaft is not magnetized, so it can, within reason, be put on any a shaft made of any material. Um, so far, we've only really put them on, on metallic shafts and I can't necessarily tell you what all of those shafts are made from. Um, but yeah, there's, there's no reason why we couldn't explore putting, putting that sensor on some much more exotic materials than steel. Um, which once again, I think leans quite heavily on this, on this podcast that it's a very, it's a very useful differentiator of that technology compared to other solutions to the problem of measuring torque in high performance motorsport environments.
0: This is interesting, this, um, we might have to sort of explain it a little bit more, but this balance of, balance of performance, <laughs> BOP, that is, that's becoming a really big thing, isn't it? It's like in different championships everywhere to, to um, so maybe just explain, explain what that is. <laughs> sure.
1: Okay. So um, I think, like I said, our, our, our current most popular solution, if it could if you could coin it popular, um, is, is the IndyCar system. And that that's purely for um, BOP. So the series access that data to make sure that all the teams are compliant. And I'm sure your audience know that in any motorsport series you watch, there's there's often a, a desire for parity between machinery. Um, and IndyCar is no different in that sense. Um, so yeah, that, that's how that solution has been used up until now. Um, we are using, we currently have a couple of projects that are 90% of the way through. I think one of, I know that one of them, they've received early prototypes to to dyno test on their facilities um, and they are not BOP. So what's really interesting is, is with these source sensors um, is that I think teams can see the value in the, the high Quality of the data that come out of these, and they would like to use them for their own data collection. So there's um there's this BOP market that we definitely want to still exist in and grow in, but there is definitely this direct um, data market as well that that we're that we are growing into, and and the two of them combined can give us quite a good coverage over many series.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that with the I just saw people obviously can't see it uh, on the podcast because but i'm smiling here because if you think it's sort of like poacher turned gamekeeper in a way of, of, of the kind of gamekeeper turned poacher because the the bop market is trying to control performance and stop people having a competitive edge um or you know doing things they shouldn't be doing um but then on the other hand there's a decent market there to for people to use this as a as a data source to give them a competitive edge um so it's a really interesting kind of like um i don't know the contrast dilemma i am not quite sure what the right word is but um you know <laughs> there's two different sides of it um interesting if it started to become something that people could use or you know that almost like if if people were using it to gain a competitive edge but then if a championship said right well actually everyone's gonna have that from this point forwards if it would do you think the data would still give value to a team you know if it, if it became a standard feature would they still be able to use it to get a get competitive edge on the vehicles
1: i think so um i, I mean i can foresee a situation where teams um develop the system purely from a prototyping point of views um to try and help them whether that just there may be um teams who just want them to run on a dyno because they're not allowed to run them in their series yet um, we, we have we are in the process of chatting to a number of series to try and mandate them um try, trying to sell like you said trying to sell them on the on the advantages of a balanced performance um and that's not just for for clutch shafts as well we've been talking to series about balance of performance and individual teams about additional data in running them on drive shafts for example so post post gearbox um so running two per vehicle let's say on on the back end of a of a rear wheel drive um race car um, and th- 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 there are many applications there and th- there's lots of data you can pull out of that um, that teams can use when they're developing a car um, i think there's, there's a big lean for me towards well there's a lean in both directions right not just not just bop there's a lean towards teams investing in that system for themselves um, and we want to make sure that we're we're on both sides of that party
0: yeah, no, it's a, it's it's quite a cool thing because from an engineer's point of view, and particularly motorsport, which is such a high-speed development environment, you know, you don't get a lot of time. Um, well, you, you get literally get no time because you, you you're constantly developing the car, launching you know improvements, developing the next load of improvements, and being able to gather more data. You know that says, is this working or not? I mean, that's that's a really valuable thing to have at your disposal, and and often like actually measuring it to the level, you know, di- you mentioned dyno work, and it's like chassis dynos are really difficult for people to use because of all the losses, so they don't tend to use those. So like vehicle dynos, and uh, so, you know, it, it's it's really difficult actually to um, to do representative work. And, and get good quality data from from a lot of the points that you'd want to in a drive line with normal sensors. You know, you can't just thrash around the track with a normal uh, set of measurement equipment on a race car.
1: Yeah, and, and something you touched on there is is one of, is one of the big challenges with any of these more complex sensors, let's say, is timeline. So a lot of series, for example, F1, will give you limited time to test, particularly on vehicle. And, and as you touched on, a lot of series will use dynos to try and do some development but you, you can't argue with getting it on a track. there was, there is no equivalent to that. Um, and that time is limited and it's very well prescribed and defined when and what you can do. So trying to get permission from series owners to to run these effectively prototype systems in those events but also to make sure that we're ready these these are not sensors that you just, bolt on in an afternoon they are they're designed into the component from this sh- from the start and, and and the manufacturing lead times for things like drive shafts and clutch shafts at the moment is is months not weeks and, and you, you have to know what's what, what the design is going to be at the front end of that um so sometimes you can be talking to to series or teams and actually there isn't enough time to get it done so some just because well, this is when we've locked down this design here are the changes that we're going to propose as, as, as McLaren applied to, to be able to instrument that, that shaft and then you, you know, then you can look at the lead times and go actually your season's not that long there's your window where you've got a test halfway through it's, it's not really feasible so the team that I work in are spending time on these source sensors at the moment to look at ways we can try and reduce that lead time to try and make sure we've, we, we're always ready and, and we can satisfy every customer who comes knocking at the door
0: I guess getting um, getting people to start thinking about it as well in a, in a you know like actually if you plan this into your development uh, program for next year or it it's something you need to be thinking about to plan in sufficiently in advance. You can't just kind of uh, do it at the last minute. It's a real strategic move to deploy this sort of technology.
1: Yeah, well, well, if if you imagine this this shaft, so, so the I'm, we've just spoken about the shaft itself, but alongside the shaft you have. Um, what we what we effectively coin a, a static coupler. So this is effectively imagine it a bit like a ring donut that the shaft sits inside. So there's a contactless pickup in there between the shaft and the coupler. And that's what trans transmits the data between the two without contact. Um that has to be mounted to something, whether that be a bell housing on a gearbox. So those things need to be taken into account with the lead times of the design as well. Um so, so there's so many little things to consider that are just outside. I mean, we were talking to a potential a potential new customer the other week, which is what prompted this conversation I was just having then about when we first introduced them to the system, it was that moment where they realized, wow, this is on a long lead time. It's not just a, you don't have a stack of three designs and we can buy one off the shelf and bolt it on. This needs to be thought about from the start. And and there are benefits to that. It does give, it gives data way beyond anything we could think of that's just bolt on for now.
0: So then in terms of, you know, how, the, the sort of direction that, that championships are going in um more electrification more hybrids everyone's sort of either balance of performance or tr- trying to get an edge is, is this something that you see um you know good potential in for the future for mclaren uh in terms of supplying this kind of sensor system alongside your electronics
1: um yeah mass- massively um i think it's a it's a great opportunity and i think it's I happen to have moved teams at exactly the right time I think into this team um some of the things they're doing are really interesting but these these source sensors in particular tied in with the the hybridization um the points I made earlier about the the shafts not needing not needing to be magnetized or made of steel I think gives us a particular niche in that market and it it is well timed with the with the direction that market is moving in um and and that's why I've, I think we need to and we are making sure that we explore as many possible opportunities for this, not just the clutch shafts, but also the drive shafts, also any shafts coming out of any hybrid system, anything that's used anywhere in the powertrain, not just internal combustion. Are areas where we are exploring.
0: Yeah. Okay. And you can get more, uh, more, more data, more performance. Sound, sounds like a sounds like a win win um, all, all around. It's great
1: teams very rarely compa- complain about more data
0: <laughs> yeah and the data analytics guys might do but
1: uh... we've had examples with um one of these shafts in the past one of the, the early prototypes um where the, and this wasn't a bop example it was a it was a team example and they've tested it and said oh there's, there's quite a lot of noise on that signal um is is it right and and we've done a little bit of investigation and worked out and realized that actually it was i coined this in a non engineering phrase it was too good um, so it was some of the spikes in their data that they were seeing they couldn't account for. But actually when they delved into the data a little bit more, they realized that it was actually the um, like the, the injection stroke on the, on the internal combustion. So they were seeing things in that data that they were not expecting to see, which gave them the opportunity to actually explore other possibilities. So can we actually lose some of the sensors that were currently running on our engine because the shaft gives us enough of an indication? So something that I didn't expect at all um just because of the resolution and, and the speed of the data, which is which is quite an interesting side of it.
0: So they could see the the sort of firing cylinders firing on the engine, well. Wow. Yeah, exactly. That's um that's phenomenal. Um so 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 if we sort of you know think thinking about looking forwards um for McLaren applied now, you know, you, you guys, you're you're um you're independent. Um what what does the future look like for McLaren applied?
1: Wow. Um, So I'll I'll deviate a little bit away from just talking about source sensors, I suppose, Uh, because we've touched on the future of those a little bit. So obviously I think we've got those, we've got those three key business areas that we spoke about before. So, so motorsport, automotive and um, connected intelligence. Um, And my knowledge on each of those lowers as I get further down that list. Um, So motorsport is about really continuing what we do now. Um, Be great at supplying world-class sensors into any motorsport series who would like them. Um, there's a big focus for us about the standard ECU um, contract with, with the FIA for Formula One. So there's a lot of focus going into that for the moment and that will, that will last for a number of years, five years, let's say. Um, and there's a lot of ancillary components that run with that. So for example, um, we have a hub interface unit that works with that. So that lives in the corner of an F1 car and all the data that comes from that corner that's effectively a node that then the hru feeds that back to to the main ecu um so, so there's lots of little spin-offs from that but really it's about continuing doing what we do now but also gr- making sure that we're there for the for the um hybridisation electric party as you touched on earlier so developing new generations of um, ecu to run alongside our standard ECU offering to Formula One. So taking that knowledge and applying it elsewhere, but also continuing to strive to make our high performance components better. We have a little bit of a motto within high performance components for um, smaller, faster, hotter. So whenever we redesign something, we need to try and make sure it's smaller. It needs to be able to deal with hotter environments, and it, it needs to be faster from from a day from a data rate point of view. So I think that's quite a nice mentality that one of the guys told me when I first started. It's very simple. It gives a clear message, you know where you're where you're driving towards. Um obviously I'm a little bit biased because that's the team I work in. Um and then and then outside of motorsport, we we've got automotive, which is about applying that that experience that we've got into the automotive sector. We're doing a lot of work with inverters at the moment, some particularly high power density inverters. That comes from our, our history of designing a number of inverters to go into the f1 powertrain teams that through necessity are high density so taking a lot of that knowledge that we've learned and the expertise within our teams and develop developing them for for automotive applications um i believe we've got some initial contract interest from some full electric vehicle partners so these sort of inverters are not for for hybridization they are for for full vehicle electrification. So that's um that's a great market. Like, like you've said before, you, you and your, your audience, that's that's their focus, that's their interest. They 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 all know what's going on with that market. And, and being involved with an inverter that's potentially the, the best power density of anything on the market to go into that arena is is a great place to be as a business. Um, I don't know a great deal about those inverters.
0: That sounds like a it's a topic for a really good uh, follow-up episode with one of your colleagues.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm, sh- I'm sure we can recommend a few people. Um, I can think of two or three already off the top of my head. But yeah, that that would be a great topic to talk about um, with someone who is a little bit more knowledgeable about that t- technology than me. Um, and then obviously we've got the connected intelligence stuff. Not to not to miss out the the, the third team, which I will hold my hands up is is the business area that I know the least about. But they've got some some really interesting contracts coming up that I know I'm not allowed to talk about um, that gives them real growth in that industry to really start. I think it's a lot of it's about volume in that industry, um, but really about them bringing something to the market that isn't offered anywhere else at the moment in terms of the communication and the data rates available on those types of vehicles. And really trying to throw some, some motorsport know-how technically we operate across three sites in Woking uh, we also have um, an office in the States as well to help support our our US-based customers because there's quite a lot of them. Um, but yeah, predominantly we we have we still have a strong presence in McLaren Technology Centre in Woking, which is where racing and automotive are based. That's where we still manufacture all of our products as McLaren Applied. Um, we have another offsite that does all of our uh, machining, which I'm obviously more familiar with as a mechanical guy. So that's all the mills, mills and lathes. Um, and then we have an office in the middle of Woking to support those who don't need to be at a production site all day, every day. Um, but yeah, we're still definitely present up at MTC. Um, I, I still go up there as much as I can because I'll be honest, you can't, in, in my opinion, as a motorsport nerd, um, I don't think you can beat walking past Etten's <laughs> cars or Micah Hakkinen's to go and get you breakfast. I don't, I don't think you can...
0: It's a quite impressive place, yeah.
1: Yeah, you get a little bit blasé to that, but um sometimes you you realize quite the environment you're in and how special it is. And I think that applies to a lot of people who work for McLaren Applied. There's 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 a lot of people who have been here a long time. And I'm not saying the brand is it's all about the brand, but that is a big part of it for them, the history of that team.
0: Brilliant. Well, and on that, which is it's probably a good point to bring things to a close and i am looking at the corner of my eye noticing that i've run over time uh, again so thank you uh for uh, for bearing with me but thank you that's been really interesting richard thanks for for taking the time out to talk about mclaren applied and motorsports and uh torque sensors and and everything else it's been really fascinating thank you
1: no worries thanks for thanks for having me